Today, I'm inviting you to step into the shoes of a parent navigating a daunting journey. It's one that revolves around a loved one suffering from a rare condition, and it's a journey that's shared by more than 3 million Canadians. It's true that Canadians are proud of our nation's free access to healthcare, but how many know about a big, missing piece of the puzzle? Canada stands alone among developed nations in lacking a comprehensive strategy to support those with rare diseases and their families. Imagine being one in 12 Canadians who face a diagnosis of a rare disease. Two-thirds of them are children. You're left with questions, fears, and a maze of uncertainties, all while grappling with the overwhelming responsibility of caregiving. Hello and welcome to I Care for Rare, a podcast for parents and families of people living with rare diseases in Ontario. I'm your host, Sherry Lynn Starkey. I Care for Rare is a social advocacy campaign designed to give individuals, families, and caregivers living with rare diseases a collective voice for system health care and community support reform. Joining me on today's show is Sandra Marcus, who is the force behind I Care for Rare. And together we are chatting with Jen Schultz, whose daughter Olivia has outgrown her diagnosis and the provision of children's palliative care services. Welcome to the show, Jen. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start at the very beginning. Can you share with us your experience of navigating the healthcare system for Olivia's rare disease diagnosis? Well, I can take it back to 2001 when she was born. No problems at birth and in the early stages of her life up to about 10 months. Then her pediatrician at the time, at about 10 months, realized that there was something wrong with her. She wasn't sitting up. And that started the journey with down a path I wasn't really sure of what it was going to be. We started off with a developmental pediatrician at CHEO, and she was, through many tests and visits, was diagnosed through a skin biopsy in 2007 with a medical condition that has never been documented in any medical books. She's one in the world, and she doesn't fit into any box. She's not labeled with a syndrome. She has a big, long medical term. What is, she has a partial mosaic trisomy of chromosome 17 in the ring format. And the ring of her diagnosis makes her one in the world, makes her unique. And at the time when we were given the diagnosis and even before the diagnosis came, treatment was given to us in a broad spectrum. It was, well, she may never walk, she may never talk, so we're just going to throw occupational therapy, physiotherapy, and speech therapy at you and see what happens. Right. And all those therapies, when a child is young and up even to the age of six, are great, but you really don't know where you're going with it all. What's the end goal? We wanted to make Olivia functioning in society. We wanted her to be happy. We wanted her to be accepted by people. But with the the different treatments of the therapies also comes along the medical treatments that we were included in at CHEO 
so we weren't only seeing physiotherapists, occupational therapists, and speech therapists, but we were also seeing cardiovascular doctor and ears, nose, and throat specialist, an endocrinologist, a neurologist, a social worker, orthopedic doctor for her spine, orthopedic doctor for her legs, the regular pediatrician. So you group all that together in the first 18 years of her life, because that's the time she's at the children's hospital. And that's two or three hospital visits uh, a month for 18 years. So it is definitely a journey. It's a learning journey. The learning curve is huge, but you become an expert in your child's health Your child and an advocate of once your eyes are open to see what's available and, and you get to speak with the doctors and speak with the social workers and the therapists of different things that your child could possibly need, then you become an advocate for your child and it's like having a second job besides your full-time job and you have a second job as a parent and then you have another third job as your advocate and doctor and nurse and therapist when they're not in therapy. It, it's, definitely, it's definitely a journey. Do you have a full-time job outside of the home? I, I absolutely do have a full-time job. I've been in a full-time job for the last 25 years and yeah, it's been a juggling act for those years. It certainly sounds like you've had a lot on your plate. And how is Olivia? Olivia is stable right now. We recently, this past March, had a little bit of a hiccup. Now that we're no longer in the children's world of healthcare, we're now in the adult world of healthcare. It's been a little bit different. It's starting from scratch all again. Mm-hmm. But this vis- this time, the visits seem to be a lot more difficult because the doctors don't know what to do. Our last visit in March, we ended up going to the emergency room. Right. And I'm trying to describe to them what was wrong. And they look at me like I've got three heads and they said, okay, well, we'll take her temperature, we'll take her vitals and go have a seat in the waiting room. Well, we arrived at noon on Friday afternoon. We did not get seen until about eight or nine o'clock that night. And we were finally admitted in the hospital at 2 a.m. on Saturday morning. Mm. And she had emergency surgery on Sunday morning at 7 a.m. We are not frequent flyers to the emergency room by any means, but I know my child. I know there's if she's in pain or if there's something wrong, something's off. I'm, we have a regular doctor, so we have a general practitioner that we visit on a regular basis, but I'd like to go to the emergency room when it's an emergency, and I'd like somebody to hear me respect the 22 years I've had with my daughter and the involvement I've had in her health care all these years. In the children's world, she was red carded. And this meant that if I ever went to an emergency room at the children's level of health care, she was seen immediately because of her health background and because of the lack of knowledge around her 
chromosome abnormalities that they were just winging it for a lack of a better word. But when you go into the adult world, it's nope, you're everybody's painted with the same brush. And we sat there in the waiting room over 12 hours. And at one point I was I was full of vomit. <laughs> and the nurse came out and said, Well, she must feel better now. Oh, oh no. And then walked away. <laughs> Didn't offer to help me to clean up the vomit that was all over the floor, all over me. Yeah, it it's definitely lonely. Yes, lonely <laughs> and different different experience. And I don't I don't know if it's the children's hospital area has more compassion for these children. Or because they see them more often on a regular basis, because at the children's hospital, we were there every six months to every year having follow-up appointments. Let's try this. Let's try that. Well, I don't have nearly as many clinic visits with all the various doctors that Olivia has in the adult world. The only consistent doctor I have is her general practitioner and her neurologist. Everybody else, I had to be re-referred to. Mm -hmm. That was a big challenge. And if we don't need them every year, then, oh, okay, so we'll take you off the list. Come back to us if you need anything. You'll have to go back to your GP for another referral and we'll put you on the list. Well, wait a minute. In the children's world... I was always on the roster and I could call them up and say, look, we're having some problems, but Olivia wears braces on her legs and um, has had bilateral hip surgery. So she has plates and pins in both of her femurs. Well, to me, that would warrant a yearly visit with an orthopedic surgeon or to ensure that the bolts and everything are in place properly and that she's walking properly and that her braces are sufficient to help her walk so that it doesn't cause her spine scoliosis to get worse. Mm -hmm. But no, I saw since she's been in the adult world, I've seen the orthopedic surgeon twice for new braces. And each time I had to get a re-referral and I was put at the bottom of the list. Yeah. Well, if her braces are too small for her or if she's lost weight and needs them adjust like a new size, that doesn't, like, I can't wait six months for that. I need an appointment in the next week so that we could get the process started. So I, I feel that there's definitely no bridging between the children's life under medical, the medical doctors and the and the hospitals to the adult caregiving with the doctors and whatnot. And would you say that's typical, Sandra? Absolutely. I think <clears throat> the re-referrals and the, the red tape, we moved from a pediatrician to a GP at 18. The GP has no, like, we're lucky to have a GP. Thankful, right? So we went to my husband's GP and said, can you take us? And they agreed, but lost complete 18 years of information right? She had, start from the start. How is your pregnancy? It's just, 
Yeah, you sound like children, a broken record with every these doctor. Children should not be transferring anywhere. They they need consistent care and quality care all the way through. Jen, was Olivia's diagnosis terminal? They never said those words, but because there was no documented cases, they said that there was no prognosis for her life expectancy. So in a roundabout way, yes. And she visited the palliative care team based on pain management Mm -hmm. and life expectancy was unknown. And she's one of the very few that actually age out of the palliative care program through the children's hospital, which I'm thankful for, but it's you're living each day, each day, because you don't know if today is going to be the day because we don't really know what's going on with her. She doesn't verbalize any pain and I don't want to be poking and prodding her all the time, right? Or taking her to the doctor. If she has, like, she wants to go to the hospital for a runny nose. She's sneezing too much. I have allergies, mommy. She's a hospital. No, we're not going to the hospital for your runny nose. Like, but there is no cure for what her chromosome abnormality has. It's a matter of managing the symptoms that she has, which are chronic. We'll be back after a break. CORD is Canada's national network for organizations representing all those with rare disorders. Their mission is to provide a strong voice and to advocate for health policy and a healthcare system that works for those with rare disorders. CORD has been advocating with federal and provincial governments for years. CORD Canada's rare disease strategy lays out a five-point action plan. It starts with improving early detection and prevention. It goes to getting the right care to patients as early as possible. Then, enhance community support. Provide sustainable access to promising therapies. And finally, promote innovative research. Community support is a major part of this issue. A recent Ipsos report identified that caregivers are overwhelmed. Almost two-thirds of them say that they don't have access to a care coordinator, and more say that they didn't get much-needed counselling. More carers feel that they don't have enough information, and they don't know how to get it. And almost 90% agree that educational, disability, and employment services are not aware or informed about rare diseases. The research identified a real need for specialized centres with local healthcare professionals to reach all patients wherever they live in Canada. I Care for Rare is asking both federal and Ontario governments to amend the Health Protection and Promotion Act and immediately adopt the recommendation set out in CORD's Rare Disease Strategy as presented originally in 2017. And now back to our interview with Jen Schultz, who's sharing her story about her life with her daughter, Olivia. How has community support? You know that we go through DSO for uh, community support. It's the province of Ontario. <clears throat> Finding respite for you, living your life, like having a life, even being able to go to the bathroom sometimes, honestly, is yoo-hoo! How do you manage? How has the community care, has community care stepped up around you to support you? 
Well, it's interesting that you bring DSO up. Originally, when Olivia, we applied for uh, Developmental Service Ontario, Olivia, it's just, I guess, the next natural step when they turn 18, that they can get the next levels of supports that they need coming out of high school. Now, Olivia stayed in high school till she was 21. So I benefited from school and structure and programming that the school offered till she was 21. And then it was like, here you go. Have fun. Go do it yourself. All right. So we go to DSO and we do the two days of Mm -hmm. three hours of monotonous questioning Mm -hmm. that some questions make absolutely no sense to children that are obviously not going to ever function without one-on-one care, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Will you get married? How much money do you have in the, like, how much money do you have in your pocket? And if I give you a dollar and we go pay for this, how much do you have? Well, Olivia doesn't know that stuff. Mm. Just take me to Starbucks and give me a coffee. That's all she wants. Mm. But <laughs> when, when, when DSO says, okay, yeah, we need, we need to do this. Okay, fine. If this is the process, I will do it. And you need to have the, Olivia needed to be there, myself, and one other person that had known Olivia for more than five years, I think it was, that intimately knew Olivia in the sense of what she required, what her personality was, what her needs were, whatnot. So I had brought along one of her educational assistants from school. Mm -hmm. And even she thought, wow, this process is heavy. It's, you're expecting a child with special needs and, and physical disabilities to sit for three hours in a one room and really do nothing. Like they're just sitting there listening. That was fine. The first one was fine. They said, okay, well, we'll take all of this back. We'll analyze it. And we will give you a list of things that we think are going to be great for Olivia, but wait, you need to reach out to these programs. Mm. All right. So I need to take care of Olivia. I need to work. And now I need to go out and, pick and choose and call and do you have room and how much is this? And I have to manage everything. So when, and I, I didn't do much of that while Olivia was still in school because there was no need to, she was still in school full time and I had care for her during the summer and school holidays. Mm -hmm. Then she comes out of school, but in the meantime, she's had an, a decrease in her, or well, an increase in her medical needs. And it was through a friend that I found out, I said, well, how can I get more, more funding? Olivia now needs more, more, she needs an, an, a wheelchair at this point, And she now needs more care. Mm-hmm. Like I need more, more care to have somebody come and bathe her and like, do help me do other things. And so I had to go back to DSO and it wasn't good enough to just have a doctor's note stating the medical needs had increased and here's why. I needed to go through that two-day, three-hour each day process once again. And by the end of it, we can't guarantee that there's going to be an increase in funding because the the tick boxes need to be ticked off in order for the money to go up. All right. So... I have a friend that happens to work at DSO and I had touched base with her and I said, how do I do this? And she said, make sure that you say, 
Olivia requires 100% care 100% of the time. And that's the only way you're going to get funding increased. Mm -hmm. Great. Olivia now gets, I think, $50 less than the maximum amount of funding that you can get through DSO. But still not enough to pay somebody 40 hours a week for 12 months of the year. And I don't know where... Now I'm saying that paying somebody for 40 hours a week, 12 months of the year, at a rate that's comfortable for them to live off of, number one, Mm -hmm. and that I feel comfortable leaving Olivia there with this person. And this person now has the responsibility to ensure that she doesn't have a seizure, to do all her therapies with her on a consultative basis with the therapist. She also has to watch her eat. She has to take her to the bathroom and she has to stimulate her in the, so that she's not being plopped in front of a TV for five hours a day or whatever. You want to pay this person enough money that they'll stay on with you for an extended period of time because Olivia wants structure. She wants somebody who she can't, well, I want somebody that she can't manipulate because she's going to try and circumvent all the rules to yes. make get her what she wants instead of what she needs. There's three months of the year. So the funding lasts me about nine months. And then there's three months of funding that comes out of my pocket. Right. So that I can pay this person. I absolutely am grateful for the funding that I do get. But again, there's a disconnect between what is what these adults require or children require in regards to care in order for me to be a a person that also works full-time. Like I need to be a contributing person in society as well. Mm-hmm. Now, it, I couldn't afford to quit my job and take care of Olivia full-time. Who's going to pay the bills? Like right, it's, yeah. it's a catch-22. But then the excuse, like... My girlfriend at DSO said, well, what about group care? And I said, well, first of all, I'm not ready to give Olivia up full time. But is that the only time that Olivia is ever going to have the care that she needs is when she gets into group care? I don't know. Does that mean, Jen, putting her into a group home? Is that what you're referring to? Yes. That are very limited spots now anyway. And goodness. But they ask you at that 18-year mark yes, when you're 18. at DSO, yeah. do you want to be put on the list? Of, I said, absolutely. To the government, basically, yes. is what so, you're doing. Exactly. <laughs> but can we ask the government? So how expensive is it to put them in group care versus if you left them at home and I hired somebody to come into my home? Let's. How about we do the pros and cons to that? and financial pros and cons to that, because I can almost guarantee the group home option has to be a whole lot more expensive than you providing sufficient funding for me to keep her home for 12 months while I work and pay somebody to come into my home to watch her. I don't know. Yeah, that whole at 18, so along with changing systems, they actually give you, uh, Lenny Sherry Lynn knows this, For interest, they actually give you basically not an ultimatum, but it's your choice. You can hand your 
son or daughter over into the system and they'll put them up in a group home. Very few, anyway, I don't want to go there if you've walked into those homes, some of those homes, put them up in a group home, but all of their funding then goes towards them. They take over all of, all of, all the money, right? Mm-hmm. Any, anything that Olivia had now goes, goes to them. The other alternative from the province of Ontario is asking parents to build their own. So they're doing a whole lot of programming on how parents can put a coach home in their backyard, how parents can group together and possibly with other parents and find living arrangements through friends, renting arrangements, or buying your own home and filling in, putting in a day program or supports. It's up to the parents to do this parents to come together as a business unit in most cases it's a very yeah it's a very big ask and people like if you've never bought a home before (laughs) that whole situation but otherwise both you ladies both have day jobs now they're asking you to take on another job run a different exactly and i just pulled down from new brunswick interestingly enough, they've put a, they're looking at the Larsh model of supportive housing for New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. Now, as opposed to Ontario saying, here, it's up to you to find care, basically is what we're being told. It's up to the parents. Alberta also has a homing, home solution, long-term care. And in all of these new government discussions about long-term care, I've never heard anything about people with rare disorders or people who straddle both healthcare and community support coming together, that they're even included in that whole scenario. That's my perspective. I just think I just think the government's saying over to you, parents. They're washing their hands. They're washing their hands. Absolutely. And it really does, it even more reflects more in the respite care options that you have. Olivia has been going to a respite care home since she's been five or six. And up until she's 21, she stayed on the children's side. And it was great. $10 a night was funded by, so I, from a parent's perspective, paid $10 a night And I was, before COVID, going at least once a month. So she'd be dropped off there on a Friday after school. She'd be picked up Monday morning, and I'd see her Monday after school on the bus. So she'd spend Friday, Saturday, Sunday there. And it was great. It was almost three days to be able to unwind. I could stay in bed. I didn't have to get up to uh, take anybody to the bathroom. I didn't have to get up and cook. I didn't have to change the channel ten. 15 times a day, uh, I could get in my car and just go to the mall. I could get in my car and go for a coffee, go for a walk, and not have to worry about any anything. Once she turned 21, the home that she stays at has a children's side and an adult side. The funding model changes. The funding on the adult side is fundraised by the uh, respite care home. And they do get some provincial funding on the adult side, but not 100%. So right now, they have some of their funding money that they raised offering, I think it's $28 or $29 a night. 
But when that money of fundraising money or the small amount of provincial funding they get on the adult side runs out, it's 320 night to mm. stay there. It's out of reach, right? Well, but that's what our passport funding from DSO is supposed to pay for, mm. as well as the 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week care that she gets while I'm at work and, and whatnot. I also, it's a juggling act with the money and it's, okay, well, would I rather her uh, with care while I'm working, but I really need a weekend. It's the juggling act that you make and the, the word I'm looking for, the sacrifices you make of your own health because you don't have the money to pay for $325 a night. And as a family, you don't want to put that that burden on other family members. I want. I, I need a break. I really need a break. I'm had a hard week at work, and no, it's mm-hmm. there's. Yeah. You don't want to put that burden on somebody else, and it's it's really difficult because once COVID hit, a lot of the respite care staff left, and they are just now restarting their day program at this respite care home. And usually the once a month I was doing over the year has now been three times this year. And I know that Olivia can be difficult to, to care for. She does have her days and does have, does have her moments. But I also am aware that there are parents that need it a whole lot more than I do. So I can only imagine the stress and, and the burnout that they're having. Yeah, we've never had respite option because Zach, it, it, he was undiagnosed for 18 years. And so it was just patchwork. Like you're just going to the tests and doing this and doing that. And it's constant, whatever. And then school, we never were able to take advantage of palliative care options or anything because it's not terminal. But we haven't had a weekend. We don't have a big family. I'll tell you, my family is probably more scared about it than... than being able to deal with it. And so people who don't have families, who don't have that nucleus around them, are really stuck. And I'll tell you, we're one of them. Steve and I rarely get a weekend. Rarely. And we've had no overnight respite for Zach at all. He's never been away from us overnight. Oh, wow. In 23 years. In 23 years. We have not been able to find a home that will take him yeah, 23 years. I'm hearing that we need more money. We need more actual help in the front lines of caring. We need more respite. Jen, what else would you say that you need? I, I think something I've learned over the years is that there is a lack of communication between parents, government agencies, just agencies in general of what's available and to everybody and how we go about getting it. It's almost like we need a to-do list of what we can do and what's out there and not have to learn by mistake or by, oh, wait a minute, how did you get that? And then learning from parents that way. Why isn't this just communicated to us all and and said, okay, so regardless of your diagnosis or regardless of whether or not you're 
labeled. Here's what's available. And I find the the group that our children fall into, because they don't have labels, get forgotten about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Olivia Olivia doesn't fall into the autism group. Well, the the list of, of agencies um, and requirements to get into those agencies, you have to have an autistic diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Well, that's 10 agencies that are out there that potentially could have something that's good for Olivia because they haven't met her and don't know what her needs are. Mm-hmm. But because she doesn't have an autistic diagnosis, oh, well, she doesn't fall into our mandate of funding. All right. Well, moving along to the next one. Okay. Well, she can't go to the bathroom by herself. Okay. Well, that's another one she can't access because she can't go to that day program because the day program expects all attendees to be able to go to their bathroom on their own. Well, she she doesn't do that. (laughs) Exactly. And our DFO right. money is to fund those who are not letting us in. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it's like um, it's so it's discriminatory, like in certain it, cases. Zach uh, walked absolutely. into a day program and they had a strobe light going because they were doing a disco. It was his first visit, and he his uh, diagnosis is epilepsy, the root cause, right? So they had a strobe strobe light going and loud music playing. And he had a seizure. He, and no, he had a, and, and I do believe that there are certain part of his behaviors that are seizure related. There's a thing called seizure personality. Okay. Anyway, so, and he doesn't get accepted anywhere because of his behaviors. So he made a loud noise and scared a couple of people because they, he wasn't properly introduced to the scene and he's out. They won't mm. take him. <laughs> it's like, okay. Uh, just, anyway. Just sorry, didn't want this to be a, a fast, but no, yeah, no, it's no. Emotional. We're going to turn it now to a more positive outlook, positive tone to end <laughs> the interview on. And Jen, I think I would ask you, what what are you most hopeful for Olivia's future? It's a good question. And if you would have asked me that 22 years ago, I probably wouldn't have been able to answer it either because our future doesn't. It, I don't want it to sound morbid or horrible because we don't really look that far into the future. Our future is tomorrow and one day at a time. <laughs> one day at a time. And we my goal every day is that Olivia wakes up healthy, overall healthy, and she's happy and she's ready to go and see the world. And that's what motivates Olivia. And if she's happy and motivated to go out in the world and do her therapies and get in the car and want to go for a car wash or go to the mall, that's that's how I see her future is that I, I just want her to be happy and experience life at whatever she wants to do without any barriers. And right now, even though Olivia is not aware of the barriers, there are so many barriers out there that I wish weren't there that were that she was just able to experience anything that she wants, just like when you're a normally developing 
child in school or teenager in school and they say, go conquer the world, do what you dream to do. Well, why aren't those privileges given to our kids that have limitations in what they can physically or mentally do, but that doesn't mean that they can't experience them and have as much joy doing things that everybody gets to do. Olivia would love to spend some time at the 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 Humane Society. Well, they won't do that because she needs to be able to go there by herself or with a group. Again, limitations. And she'd like to go and sort food at the food bank because sorting is something she likes to do. Mm-hmm. Well, no, we don't have a program like that. Well, why can't she just sign her up as a volunteer? Oh, well, we're not taking any new volunteers. And I just want her to be awarded the ability to enjoy life like anybody else and have no limitations or any red tape that she has to jump through to get there. Very well put. And thinking back now on your life as being Olivia's mother, what are you most proud of? That I did it. <laughs> that I'm still here to I say that I did it. It's been a long journey. You just take the little, the little hurrahs. The she had her a wish trip back in January of 2019, and Olivia is a huge Disney fan, huge. So her wish trip through uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation was granted and we went to Disney World. And we were sitting in front of Magic Kingdom and Elsa and from Frozen was there and she was singing her Frozen song. And Olivia is in her wheelchair with her Make-A-Wish shirt on just singing at the top of her lungs. I'm videotaping her bawling my eyes out because I knew that this is all she ever wanted was to see her princesses in Disney World. And then my best friend, who's also her care full-time caregiver, was there videotaping me crying. <laughs> so that is something that I'll never forget because, again, something so simple, but yet so memorable that that I knew was just everything for Olivia. And she still talks about it to this day. She wants to go back to Disney World. So it's the little things that you find joy in. Yeah, it's a wonderful answer. Thank you for that. Sandra, is there anything else that you'd like to add or ask? I don't think so. I just want to reiterate that this, this collective group of people that we're speaking to about their experiences We've known Olivia for 10 years, 10 years or so. Zach actually went to school with Olivia and they developed a unique <laughs> language, a unique language. And I just, at the end of the day, I just want these special people to be really happy with their lives. No, we yeah, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Thank you very much, ladies. <laughs> I Sandra, will Jen. be cry. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Jen. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us on I Care for Rare, where we delve into the often hidden world of rare diseases 
and the challenges faced by Canadian families because a comprehensive strategy is missing from the healthcare landscape. Thank you to our guest, Jen Schultz, who has generously shared her touching story about the joys and challenges of life with her daughter, Olivia. I Care for Rare aims to unite families, individuals, and caregivers, amplifying their voice for healthcare and community support reform. If you have a story to share, a perspective to add, or if you're seeking support, please reach out. Together, we can drive awareness, advocate for change, and create a world where rare is recognized, understood, and importantly, supported. I Care for Rare makes advocacy easy. Please visit our website to sign a petition in support of Bill 129 to implement the recommendations of the Rare Disease Working Group. You'll also find letters demanding action that you can download and send to government officials. Please see the show notes for a link to our website. And please share a link to this show with someone that you think would benefit from hearing Jen's and Sandra's stories. Please leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts from. This will help others who need us to find our show. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sherry Lynn Starkey, and this is I Care for Rare.